We all tend to make messes in life. Just ask your kids. This is exactly what our discussion leader, Dave Wurtson, does as we turn the pages of our Bibles to Genesis chapter 38, a chapter filled with prostitutes and promises. But in the middle of this mess, we could find the roots of the Messiah. Do you all ever make a mess? Anybody here ever make a mess? What does your room look like this morning? Any of you have just immaculately clean rooms? You don't even know what immaculate is, Clint. How many have you had your mom come into your room this week and say, when are you kids going to clean up your room? Anybody ever have your mom say that? Okay. How many of you ever make a mess at school? Okay, I want to tell you something I do. My room, my closet's kind of a mess, but my room's usually pretty neat. But kind of. I might get struck with lightning. But one of the problems that I have is I have a way of ruining shirts, okay? I have a way of ruining shirts. And the reason I ruin shirts is that I like to use this kind of a pen. And this is one of those old-fashioned kind of a pen. It's a fountain pen. There's only one trouble with this. Sometimes you put it in your pocket like this, and you, all day long you can have it in your pocket, and at night you look down, and guess what happened? There's a big blue ink spot there, and it just makes a mess out of your shirt. You can ask Mary over there. She gets absolutely furious at me when I do that. So I've got a special thing. I went out and I think I have a solution to that. So what I need to do, I need to have some of you come on up here. And I think I've got a solution to this. I'm going to let you squirt ink all over my shirt today, okay? Go ahead, just squirt it on. They're all over my shirt. Let some of the girls up here, just squirt that all over. Come on. Just squirt it all over my shirt. Don't get it on my pants. I don't want to ruin my pants. Not on my face. Right, right on my shirt. I need it on my shirt. Let's get somewhere here. You want to squirt it? Squirt it all over my shirt. Okay. All right. There we go. Okay. All right. Let's save some of it. Maybe we'll want to do it again. That'll be fun. All right? Now, when that stuff, well, it looks like you did make a mess out of my shirt. We'll have to see. You'll have to watch while I'm speaking and see what happens. Okay? What we're going to talk about today, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember this verse. It's about a mess, that we start out with a mess. When you first spray that stuff on, it looks like it's ruining my white shirt, and that's why I wore my white shirt today. It looks, first of all, like we ruined it. And sometimes in our life, it looks like we ruined our life. And there's a verse that goes like this, for the wages of sin is death. And we're going to begin by talking about a guy in Genesis 38 where the wages of sin was death. It looked like he totally inked up his life, messed up his life, really made a lot of problems out of it. In fact, he's going to lose two of his sons in death because the wages of sin is death. But we're going to find out if you listen really carefully that just like it looks like you ruined my shirt at first, but probably by the end of the service it'll be dry, it'll be look like you did absolutely nothing. We're going to find out, but the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And just like the ink spots that look like were on my shirt, Jesus, because he died for us, can bring about forgiveness and grace. I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. We want to study today about the life of a man who looked like he'd taken ink and just totally blotted out his life, put black ink all over it, ruined it in a very severe way. In fact, I think I could illustrate what this chapter is about if you think about someone that grew up in our church. I want you to imagine somebody this morning who grew up in a church like ours. In other words, they went to Sunday school every week, they went to Awana, they memorized the verses, they faithfully were taught by their parents the Holy Scriptures, but they went away to college, 
And they began to think, you know, when they got to be about 20 years of age, that mom and dad's beliefs were kind of naive. There was a modern world after all. There were other people out there. There were other religions. There were a lot of girls out there that did not go to church every day. There were a lot of girls that did not study the word of God. And this fella just kind of drifted away. In fact, he went away from his mom and dad, who were godly. This individual went off and stopped attending church on a regular basis. In fact, this guy hardly even went on Easter or at Christmas time. This guy, because he married an unbeliever, and in marrying this unbeliever, his kids didn't learn anything about Awana. They didn't learn anything about Sunday school. And in fact, if I were to look at this guy's family, you would never, never know that this person had been raised in a godly evangelical home. So it looks like in just one generation, a family that started out being very godly, living very close to the Lord, had suddenly turned, and it looks like it's all messed up. And it looks like that heritage is going to be lost. And we can look at that. In fact, some of you as moms and dads, think about that. Some of you as young people, some of you might even be here like that. You can say, well, what in the world is God doing in my life? My dad, when my brothers and sisters interviewed my dad, one of the questions they asked him is my dad related the heritage of his life and related to us about how he came to know Christ as his Savior. My brothers and sisters asked him, do you think that it could be lost? Do you think that that heritage could be lost? And my dad said, yes, I think it could be lost just like that. My dad said, in one generation, I think it could be gone. But we want to look at an amazing chapter today. We're going to look at... God reaching out to a life that is filled with death because of sin. It's filled with immorality. It's filled with living way away from the Lord. But you're going to find out, and maybe there's going to be some tremendous comfort to a mom and dad here. Maybe the Lord's going to reach out and touch a young person, maybe in their 20s or 30s or 40s, who has kind of wandered off and you, maybe you came back today. Because God was still interested in this young man of 20 that went away from home and walked completely away from God because God didn't walk away from him. I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. If you haven't done so, we want to begin by looking at the deadly consequences of sin. Genesis 38 starts out like this. At that time, now just so you get the at that time, at that time, after they had sold Joseph into slavery, after they thought they had taken care of Joseph for good. In fact, the man we want to talk about today, his name is Judah. And Judah was the fourth kid in the family of, of Jacob. He was the fourth son. He was probably the most dominant, forceful son in the family. In fact, even though he was the fourth son, he could take his brother Reuben, who was the oldest, and take care of him. No problem at all. The only competition that Judah got for leadership in this family was from an unexpected source. It was his next to the youngest brother. And he already took care of him. He sold him into slavery in Egypt. So Joseph is gone. Judah was probably about 20 at this time when he sold Joseph into slavery. Joseph was probably about 17. So there's only about a three-year difference. So now Judah has the leadership of his family. In fact, it was his idea to pull his brother out of the pit and sell him to the Midianites going down to Egypt. So it was at that time, at that time after they took Joseph's bloody coat, soiled with the goat's blood, threw it at their father. Their father was just devastated, thrown into horrible grief. It was after all that took place that Judah left home. 
He left his brothers. Maybe he left his brothers because when you do something as dastardly as selling your younger brother into slavery, it kind of tears families apart. So we've got a broken family. Judah leaves his brothers, and he went down to stay. When you move away from the Lord, you're always going down. In the Bible, he did go down. He went from a little bit higher up in the mountains, a little bit down probably towards the Mediterranean Sea, kind of in the in-between ground. The Canaanites controlled the Philistine plain at this time. The sons of Jacob were living up in the highlands, up into the mountains. And Judah begins to go down to this Canaanite stronghold. And so he goes down and he stayed with a man, Avadulam, that's the name of the town, a man named Hira. And there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. The man was named Shua. And he married her and lay with her and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son who was named Onan. And she gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Kassib that she gave birth to him. What's going on here? I want you to pick up on a few things. Number one, I want you to see that Judah wanders away from the Lord and he starts to have unbelieving friends. And what does that remind us of? What did we learn from Psalm 1 about the life of wisdom? Oh, the happiness of the man who does not stand in the way with sinner, who does not follow the bad advice of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners, and who does not sit in the seat of the scornful. Now we come up to Genesis 38. What's Judah doing? Judah is sitting around, standing around, listening to the counsel of a Canaanite. Now, all the way through the book of Genesis, we've been learning about the ungodliness, the immorality, the going away from the Lord of these Canaanites. Okay? I want you to see how Psalm 1 fits together with Genesis 38, because these lessons come over again and again and again. Let me underscore, the Bible's not telling us that we shouldn't live with unbelievers. It's not telling us that we shouldn't go to school with them, that we shouldn't work with them, but it's saying that we need to be very, very careful about being unequally yoked with them. We need to be very careful about who's reaching who. In other words, as believers, we need to be reaching into the unbelieving world to bring them to Christ. In this case, the unbelieving world was reaching into the believing world and taking Judah into the world of unbelief and wickedness. Now, when you start hanging around with unbelievers, the next thing you do is you begin to notice that some of those families have some really knockout girls, and so Judah marries a Canaanite. Now, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? All the way through this book, remember Abraham's concern for his son Isaac? And remember that Abraham sent his servant Eliezer all the way over on a several hundred mile trip? Why? Because he didn't want the promised child Isaac to marry a Canaanite. Didn't want him to marry an unbeliever. The same thing happened with Jacob. Remember, Isaac said to Jacob, don't take a daughter of the children of Canaan. Instead, I want you to go and marry a believer. And remember, when we taught those lessons, we underscored it. I don't want any one of our young people, and I don't want any mom and dad, because I've heard it again and again and again. I've heard many young people and many mom and dads that have said, I never heard you shouldn't marry an unbeliever. I never heard that. You've never heard, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I want you to remember, we've said it over and over again in the book of Genesis. It's because I love you. You see, two can't pull together unless you're agreed. And when I taught you those lessons, I've shared, like Mary and I have been married, and I would say that the core of that relationship is the sharing of core values. I can look around this room. Some of you got married very young. 
And you look back on your life and you say, man, I don't know how in the world we ever held it together. But if you think carefully, when it came to your belief in Christ, when it came to your commitment to the Lord Jesus, even though your faith and your relationship with him has grown greatly over the years, you can look back at those early days of your courting and of your relationship together and the center of your life, your shared belief was, Jesus is my Savior. And it's held you together by a miracle. A lot of you would say, man, I can't believe it. It's just a miracle. And it is. It's a miracle in all of our lives. But if Jesus isn't present, then there's this tremendous discord right at the center and the core of your life. It doesn't mean you can't have a, a real romantic time together. You might be able to even work together well. But at the core of your spirituality, which is right at the center of our personalities, there's not unity. And Judah went in and he married a Canaanite. And it's, the amazing thing is, what I just read to you, the text just kind of says, well, he married a Canaanite. It used to be really a serious thing. But now the family's kind of wandering away from the Lord and Judah just does it. And he marries the wrong girl. And that can happen to you. See, I want every one of us to realize some of our kids can grow up and they can marry the wrong person. They can kind of wander away from the Lord. And as moms and dads, we can wonder, like, maybe that's the end. Maybe God will wash their hands of them. Now, what happens when you go down and you live among the Canaanites, you stop dwelling together with God's people, you marry an unbelieving girl, you lose all the heritage of godliness that has been offered to us in the Scripture? Well, let's look and see what happens. It goes on and tells the story of what happens to these three boys. Look at verse 6. Judah got a wife for Ur. That was his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death. Now that's tough. Remember I had the little children up here and I said, the wages of sin is death. And this is a hard part. In fact, as a pastor teacher, I really wish with all my heart that I could tell you the wages of sin is not death but it is in this case this firstborn son you see judah had a relationship with the lord when he was young but now he's forgotten about it he's wandering away we're into the next generation what's the first son what is he like well this little phrase he was wicked in the eyes of the lord is a phrase that's used in genesis chapter 6 just before god sent the flood it said that the Lord God in heaven looked down upon the sons of men and he saw that the thoughts and intents of their hearts were only evil continually. And it says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, that they were evil in the sight of the Lord. And it brought the flood. Another passage where this is used is in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says just before God sent the terrible judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, it says that the activities and the behavior of the men of Sodom was evil in the sight of the Lord. So twice in Genesis, once by flood and once by fire, God takes the life of those who are committed to wickedness. Evidently, Ur was like the fourth class of fool that I talked to us about. In Psalm 1, I talked about the impenetrable block, a person who is hardened in their relationship with God. And I share with you then, I have no idea who that individual might be. But I want all of us to realize that there is a sin unto death. He who hardens his neck, being often reproved, shall suddenly be cut off without remedy. Now that's tough. 
And these days in our modern world, we want to say, well, God never does that. And we lose this idea of the judgment and the righteousness and the holiness of God. Ur thought he was away from God, but you can't get away from the holy, righteous God. Now, in those days, if you were a widow of a son, and that son had a brother, if you became the widow, according to the custom of the land, so that your brother's name would not be blotted out, because it was very important, especially in old Israel, as they were struggling to bring the Messiah into the world, there was a custom that would ensure that a deceased brother's name would not be blotted out from his people. And what the custom was is that the next brother in line would take the widows, the widow into his family, and she would become his wife, and the first child that was born of that union would become the heir of the deceased brother. He would take his deceased brother's name, he would take his deceased brother's inheritance, and down through the generations, that would be the continuation of that family tree. And that's called the Leveret Law. It was not only present in Israel, it was true also in Egypt, the Hittite kingdom. Some of uh, the Greek cultures use that same kind of a custom. And that's what's going on in verse 8. It says, Then Judah, that's Judah the father, said to his son Onan, his second son, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to pr produce offspring for your brother. You see, Onan is to take Tamar. He's to have relationships with her so that he can raise up a son who will carry on the name of his brother. And it was a respectful, honoring thing for him to do within their culture for the brother. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring, he knew that that first offspring would not be his. So that whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Lest any of you feel that the Bible is a little bit prudish, probably most of you have never read that verse on a Sunday morning. How powerful this whole area of sexuality is. And how strong the emotions are. Don't talk about it. Let's talk about it. And what's so important for us to do, and it was a challenge to me, there's a part of me that says, well, let's just skip over some of the sections of the Word of God. Let's just pretend they're not there. But we can't do that. It's because the church has skipped over some portions of Scripture like Genesis chapter 38 that the enemy's been able to come in like a flood and really do a lot of damage. Now, what was happening in Onan's life is he was supposed to be honoring his brother. He was perfectly willing to take his brother's young widow. She wouldn't be that old. She could have been even 15 or 16 because they would marry young. He was willing to take her and he was willing to use her for his own pleasure. But he was unwilling to raise up a child for his brother. And that's the specific reason that God struck him down. That, that selfishness, that using his brother's widow for his pleasure, but not being willing to take responsibility and not being willing to raise up a child, that is what wiped out Onan. Now, you're Judah, and you've got two sons that are dead. You've got one son left. As a daddy, what would you think? 
At the daddy, you'd start to put two and two together. And I want you to notice what he does. Notice it says this. Verse 11. Then Judas said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house. In other words, Tamar, go back to your dad's home until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Now let's put two and two together. Who is Judah blaming for the death of his boys? Tell me. Tamar. Whose fault is it that his boys are dying? It's his fault, but primarily it's his, it's his boys' fault. I want, you, now I want you to think very carefully about that. You know when you're wandering away from the Lord, now everybody pay attention. When you are wandering away from the Lord and you're not living close to him, and you begin to get into the bad consequences. Now, God is very gracious. He doesn't just strike people down. In fact, that's the last thing in the world he does, and his patience is much more than any of us have. He has tremendous patience. But what happens to us when we're wandering away from the Lord and we start facing the bad consequences? What we start to do is to come up with wrong conclusions about what is wrong. We start to blame everybody else. And we totally fail to look at the real cause. What should have happened in this family is Judah should have said, I'm at the wrong place. I'm living with the wrong people. I've gotten away from God. And when I get away from the author of life, I'm starting to walk into death. He should have realized, I remember what my son was like. What was Ur really like? Ur was a wicked man. We don't know exactly what his wickedness was, but it was something so heinous that God cut him off. Onan, his second son, was an immoral, pleasure-sinking playboy that would selfishly use a woman, but, but would not be willing to raise up a seed for his brother. He cursed Tamar, he cursed his brother. But Judah didn't see any of it. He doesn't see the wickedness of Onan or the wickedness of Ur. He puts two and two together, and the only innocent person in the whole story so far is Tamar, and she is labeled, you're the guilty one. Okay? Now, I want all of you to pay careful attention to that, because that's what I do, and that's what you do. Whenever you start wandering away from the Lord, you become totally blind to what's really wrong in your family, to what's really wrong in your life. And you start blaming on everyone else. And your first step to really getting things well and getting things together is to open your eyes and look at the wickedness that's right in our hearts. That's what grace enables us to do. It's what we've been stressing again and again and again. Right now, Judah is living in incredible denial. Everything is wrong with Tamar. Nothing's wrong with his family. When in reality, he married the wrong person. He raised kids in a totally ungodly environment. And of course people die. Because they're walking away from the skillful principles of life. Now, let's just apply this in the New Testament. You say, Dave, can New Testament believers lose their life? Yeah, they can. 1 Corinthians 5. We've talked about that passage, but it's a passage in Corinth where a man was living in incest with his stepmother. And it had become a terrible, terrible shame for the church of Jesus Christ throughout the city of Corinth. So Paul wrote back in 1 Corinthians 5 and said, Deliver him outside the protection of God's people for the destruction of his physical life. 
so that his spirit might be able to be saved. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 11, a very difficult passage, but very important for us understanding the New Testament context. Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. It says this, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment, of raging fire, that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again... The Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, one of the mistakes I think that's made in this passage is that many believers read this passage and believe it's referring to God the Father saying to one of his children, you will be condemned into eternal fire forever. And I believe that that pushes the judgment way too far. And it also fails to make the connection between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In Genesis chapter 38, we did not read that Ur was cut off eternally. I don't know what happened to Ur eternally. Only God knows. What I know is that Ur lost his physical life. I know that Onan lost his physical life. I know that 1 Corinthians 5 says that a believer living in hardened, unrepentant sin can lose his physical life. And Hebrews chapter 11, I think, is building up on that same thing and what it's saying. If you're a believer, that there's come a time in your life when you've looked at the cross of Calvary and you said, Jesus, I want you to wash away my sins. I want you to forgive me. I believe you rose again. And there comes that immediate reality of Jesus coming to live in your life. And then you go out into life and you begin to do things that make a laughing stock of the cross of Christ. You see, Christ hung on the cross because of immorality, because of stealing, because of, of terrible animosity against God, blaspheming his name. And so when we as God's children live a lifestyle where it's hardened and we're unrepentant and we're living just like an unbeliever, it's making a mockery out of the cross, among the unbelieving world. And God is saying in Hebrews chapter 11, when you're wandering away from the forgiveness of that cross, beware, because God will repay, even under the new covenant. Now that's not something that needs to make us terrified of a loving father. In fact, to be honest with you, if you were living in that hardened, unrepentant state, it probably wouldn't mean anything as I'm talking to you today. In fact, this kind of a person usually sits and just mocks. They don't care less anymore. And therefore, they reach that stage where that, their, their heart's impenetrable in their heart. But for those of you that are soft, and for my own life today, this passage warns me. It warns me against flippantly using the cross of Christ and not taking the sin in my own life seriously, and not taking it in relational, very personal terms. I want you to think of what Jesus did for you in very personal terms. And love him for that, and cherish him for that, and never treat his cross lightly. 
Because Hebrews is warning us, if we make a mockery of the cross, then our Father can judge us very severely. Ur lost his life because of wickedness. Lost that tradition of godliness. Onan lost his life because of immorality. Judah doesn't see what's going on in his family. We don't have repentance. What he does is he says it's all Tamar's fault. He sends Tamar back to her father's house. And what Judah's thinking is, with this widow out of the way, now Sheila will be able to grow up. Tamar, living in her father's house, might see someone else. And I can get rid of this witch of a widow. That's really what it's like, who's destroying all my boys. That's how turned around everything has gotten. The story gets even more complex. Turn back to Genesis chapter 38. Now we have one of the most intricate plot lines in all the Bible. It's filled with danger. It's filled with intrigue. It's filled with an incredible twist in the story. Look what happened. Verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. So Judah not only lost his two boys, but he also lost his wife. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Tira, the Adulamite, went with him. So he's still hanging around with his unbelieving friends. And what they're doing here, let me just bring it into a modern context here. What you have here, the guy has been widowed, and he has recovered a little bit from that grief. He now gets together with his friends. He goes up for sheep shearing. The modern equivalent would be, let's go clubbing. It'd be exactly like that. What we need to do is we need to go into Dallas. We need to have a good time. We need to get drunk as a skunk a little bit. Now, if we had open confession time, Judah is not too much different than maybe somebody here. And what I want you to see is you piously come on Sunday morning and you read the Bible and you think all this preaching stuff doesn't really relate to where you live. Well, you need to open the Bible because it relates exactly to where I live and where you live. I love it for that. I'm trying to help you to feel it. A time of grief. Judah is recovering from the time of grief, and now he's going to go out and he's going to party with some of his friends because that's what you did at sheep shearing. You see, Laban, earlier in the story, was partying with his sons. That's when Jacob split. Boaz, it was a time of harvest, very similar to the sheep shearing time. He went to the threshing floor, and he had a party in an evening. The same kind of a deal, only Boaz was a righteous man who was very moral. This is the case of a man, Judah, who's living like an unbeliever, and man, he just lives completely like an unbeliever. So what happens? It says, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow. This is verse 13. She took off her widow's clothes. Notice how faithful she was. She's still wearing those widow's clothes. She covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. We've had that before. Remember Leah? We've had this little ploy, this disguising herself. She covered herself with a veil. And then she sat down at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila had now grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. Now, you've got to understand what's going on. Sheila is a grown boy, grown man now, he's grown up. He should have been given to Tamar, but he wasn't. Now, what's Judah's plan? Judah doesn't have any intention at all of giving his third son to the girl that he thinks is killing off his sons. So Tamar is a, is a, is a forsaken, lonely, 
helpless widow in her daddy's house. In the ancient Near East, she would die childless. The name of her husband would be lost forever. Now, it's hard for us to feel that because in our day, we don't have these kind of connections. But in the ancient Near East, Tamar is really in a tremendously difficult situation. And there's no hope. Sheila has grown up. He's not going to be given to her. So what she does is she comes up with a tremendously dramatic, dangerous plan. Look what she does. It says in verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went in unto her by the roadside. Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. Now you have a prostitute that's bargaining for the price. And young people, this is exactly what can happen down the West End. It happens in Manhattan. It happens in certain places in Arlington. And I want you to see the Bible talks about all this stuff. And I want you to see that a kid right growing up in our church can get involved in this because if I take it back in the Old Testament, Judah was raised in a Bible church. You got me? Judah is not some pagan kid that's now grown up to a man. Judah is a man that's part of the covenant people. He was raised the son of Jacob. He knew the promises of Israel, but now he's negotiating for the price of prostitution. That's what's going on. Well, they quibble back and forth, and he said, well, I'll give you, the, I'll give you a goat. Evidently, that was the going thing. In fact, this family had a lot of trouble with goats. Have you noticed that? This family has a terrible, terrible time with goats. And now the price of the prostitution is a goat. But this prostitute is smart. She says, I'll tell you what, he doesn't have the goat with him. So to make sure that he comes through with the payment, he says, you take off a signet, which was a necklace with a signet cylinder that all the men carried in the ancient world. It's what you used to sign your name. It was like a, a ring that had a press on it, and you would roll it in clay. So you, you give me your signet, and they also carried a staff. It was like a walking stick, only it was very ornate and, you know, very much carved. And every man would carve it very uniquely. In fact, you could nail a man. It was like a fingerprint. You would know. If you saw that, that stake, that walking stick, you would know who it belonged to. Same with the cylinder, okay? So the prostitute says, you give me your signet and your staff, and that'll be the down payment. So it tells us here. It says, your seal in its cord, verse 18, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. And after she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Verse 20, meanwhile, Judah sent the younger goat by his friend, the Adulamite. Notice how righteous Judah is. I really want you to notice, I mean, this guy is really, I mean, if you have a business deal with this guy, he's going to come through. So he sends his friend. By the way, if you're negotiating this kind of a thing, if you want to learn how to do it, you want to not go personally, it's not very wise to make second contacts like this, so you send a friend. Whenever you're in trouble, in fact, a good way to know whether you're in trouble is whether or not you can deal face-to-face -face with people. You understand what I'm talking about? Whenever you find yourself in life not being able to deal face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, you have to send your friends it happens all the way from the teenagers working on relationships in high school all the way up to some of you guys in business and girls. Whenever you can't deal face-to-face -face with somebody, watch out. Whenever you've got to send your friend to kind of negotiate the delicate things. 
So his friend goes up there and to order to pay the pledge back. And he asked the men who live there. Notice he asked the men. They're the ones that would know whether or not a prostitute was there. there. Where is the shrine? I love that. Notice how we changed it now. Early in their passage, there was a prostitute. But now what do we have? When his friend goes back, it's everything. What I want you to see is when you enter this world of wickedness, everything gets kind of a little bit whitewashed. You say, well, Dave, what's the difference? Well, in the ancient Near East, there was just the plain Jane Zona, the prostitute. That wasn't good. That was bad. Okay? But there was the Kedoshim, which means the holy ones. Notice Satan's always playing the same games. You just change the words a little bit. The prostitute, she's bad. But the holy one, she isn't bad. You know why? Because that was part of their religion. You see, there was a prostitute in the ancient Near East that was a priestess. And she was a high-class prostitute. And she would be at a shrine. And it might be under trees. It might be at the junction of roads. But the men would go to this holy one. They would have relationships. And that's what they believed would bring the rain and would bring the harvest and the crops. And among the Canaanites, it was perfectly accepted. A lot like our own day. Sexual immorality in our own day had become a religion as well. And I want you to see all this denial. Judah, and it's going to get worse. In just a minute, Judah's going to do one of the most incredible denials and hypocritical things you can imagine, okay? Judah has relationships with a woman that doesn't belong to him. He's an immoral man. He sends his friend up. His friend negotiates. They can't find this holy one because there isn't any holy one in that area. Evidently, the shrine prostitute wasn't in that area. So the man says, I don't know what we're going to do. So Judith throws up his hand and says, well, I've taken care of my side of the bargain. The goat goes back home. Everyone's going to live happily ever after, right? Now, all of you are going to get in this. I, hopefully, you won't get into situations like this, but I, if you'd learn from the Word of God, and if I would learn from the Word of God, that when you get away from the Lord, everything gets knotted. And you try to be faithful. You try to keep your bargains, even in this ungodly state. You know, here you are working hard to pay off a prostitute. Judah throws up his hand. He says, well, I've done everything I can. My friend did everything he could. I guess that's it. Then the plot thickens. In verse 25, Jesus says, let her keep what she has. You know, I'll just have to get a new signet ring. You know, I don't want to be a laughing stock. I did the best I could. Verse 24, after three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And all the people said, oh, right? Now, this is kind of like one of those melodramas. The wicked person comes out, right? That's it. I want you to feel it. That's exactly what's going on in that story. I can just see Judah's face now. And he's going, bad, 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 bad. Look what else. I mean, this guy, this guy is incredible. Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And even worse, as a result, she's become pregnant. Judas said, well, you know, we're living in the Canaanite world. We live in immorality. If Tamar wants to be involved in immorality, so what? It's an incredible thing about this unbelieving world. It's incredible how inconsistent the standards are. If you don't get caught, if nobody knows, if you take your goat up and you can't find the person so it looks like they vanished in the thin air, nobody ever knows, and there's no problem. But if a girl gets caught because she gets pregnant, then all of a sudden the rules change. Now look what Judah says. Judah said, bring her out here. 
Let's burn her to death. All the people said, Amen, right? Let's get her. Just like a movie script you might see. We're going to burn her. I want you to think about the hypocrisy of that. This double standard has been going on forever. And it's right here in the Word of God. Don't you see? You see, see how practical the Word of God is? And this is an ancient custom. We don't have leveret marriage in our day. We don't give goats for the cost of prostitution. So a lot of those ancient things are very different. But I want you to see that underneath, the basic human nature hasn't changed at all. And I guarantee that you're going to face this kind of temptation. I guarantee that it's very possible there's someone here that's acting just like Judah. It's very possible there's some of you daddies that you get ripping mad Ripping mad when your kids do the very thing that you're doing. In fact, if the anger level gets too hot, watch out. If the anger level gets too hot, it's very possible that you're covering an evil intent in your heart. Judah would scream bloody murder. He says, bring Tamar out. And we're going to burn her at the stake. In the ancient world, they usually stoned the guilty couple, both. Later on in Israel, according to Deuteronomy chapter 25, both the male and the female, if they were caught, they were caught red-handed, it could be verified, both of them were to be stoned. Because in God's law, there was no double standard. But we're before the law of Moses, several hundred years, we're operating very much in the, in the culture of Canaan and Israel in its early, early stages. And evidently the custom was for this kind of a crime, because from Judah's perspective, Tamar was still betrothed to his youngest son. And just like Joseph was going to put Mary away, Judah is saying because Tamar evidently became involved with some unknown man, she had become pregnant, she's played the immoral woman, she should be burned because she committed adultery. And I want you to catch this stirring scene. The men grab Tamar, pull her out. I don't know how far they got, but let's just imagine it. They get a bunch of wood, tie her to a stake, put the pile of wood up. Judith steps forth, and Tamar reaches in and pulls out a signet ring and a staff. And she says... Let the man who owns these utensils identify them. Now you talk about a twist in a story. Here's Judah in front of all of his friends, completely exposed in his hypocrisy. Really exposed. Here he was going to burn a woman because she was immoral. And he was the one who was her accomplice, and he didn't even know it. Doesn't sin have a way of finding us out? Doesn't sin have a way of finding us out? That's why it's so important to not enter this world of unbelief. It's why it's so important to stay home with the Lord. Why it's so important to be with God's people. Why God's word is quicker and powerful and sharper than a double-edged sword. But you know what? I told you today, remember the ink blots on my shirt and how they disappeared? You know, a friend of mine spoke on this passage recently. And at this point in the message, what he said was, 
Genesis 38 tells us why the Lord chose Joseph and why he rejected Judah. And I thought about that. In other words, at this point in the message, what he did is he drove home the point, which is what I hear over and over again. In fact, I can show you most of the commentators would do that exact same thing. At this point in the story, what I would say is Judah is bad. Joseph down in Egypt is good. And God has chosen Joseph because of his commitment. We're going to learn just the opposite. Unlike Judah, Joseph is a totally morally pure, clean man. Unbelievable, righteous example. Chapter 38, man, this would be X-rated. If we did a film of this story, it'd never make it on Sunday morning. Have you ever stopped to think about that? This is a bad news story. Passion, immorality, prostitution, dead sons. It's a mess. So my friend said, God loves the good like Joseph. Judah forever, because of this terrible deed he did in Genesis 38, was wiped out. You know, this thing that's so sad about that is I believe personally, and I want you to think about it, I believe personally that it misses the whole point of the whole story of Joseph, the whole last part of Genesis. It says that Judah, in fact, I think this is the beginning moment, this is the beginning moment of Judah's genuine spiritual life. When Judah stood by a piled up stack where he almost burned a woman, and she hands him his signet ring and his staff. I think Judah's response shows one of the very first times that Judah begins to turn towards God. Because he tells the truth. He says, Tamar is more righteous than I. You see, yes, it was a daring plan. It was right on the verge. It was right on the verge of immorality. But under their ancient law, even, as, even the father-in-law, if there was no son available, the father-in-law under the Leveret law would be responsible to raise up a child for his dead son. From the customs of their day, Tamar was totally exonerated. It was a daring plan. It almost got her killed. And when Judah was exposed... Instead of continuing to deny, which he could hardly do because God had maneuvered him into a moment of truth, Judas said, Tamar, you're the righteous one. He took her into his house. Evidently, the leveret rule involved you just impregnated the woman because the only thing was not just the sexual enjoyment of a wife. It wasn't that at all. It was to bring a child. And Tamar lived under the protection of Judah. And her sons became his heirs. But that's not the end of the story. The roots of the Messiah. I want you to know something. If you look back through Jesus' family tree, if you look back through Jesus' family tree, you're not going to find Ephraim, the second son of Joseph, or Manasseh, the oldest son. There are two of the tribes in Israel, but not the promised tribe. You go to Matthew chapter 1, in verse 3, you know what you're going to read? Of Tamar was born Perez, and you come right down through that, and you produce David. Ruth chapter 4, 
When you get to Ruth chapter 4, it tells a marvelous love story of Ruth and Boaz. At the very end of Ruth chapter 4, there's a man's name, Perez, Salmon, Boaz, and you come right down and eventually you've got King David. Now what is God telling us? In the big story of Scripture, in the big story of Scripture, remember I told you we're going to tell you the story of a man who was totally out of it, a guy that grew up in a good Bible church, supposedly really knew the Lord, wandered completely away from it. Mom and dad cried for years. I'm sure Judah caused Jacob terrible, terrible heartache. But you know the amazing thing is God wasn't through with Judah. God wasn't through with Judah. And this is the man that became the progenitor of the Messiah, Jesus. You know what that is? It's a story of amazing grace. Now, what do we learn from it? We've learned that the wages of sin is death. But we close this morning by saying, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What Genesis 38 does is call all of us. It says to every one of you in this room, maybe Genesis 38 has exposed some of your past. Maybe it's exposing some of your present. Maybe it's exposing the general drift of your heart. And Genesis 38 comes to all of us today and says, I haven't forgotten you. I know where you're at. I know what you're experiencing. And God says, I'm not through with you. You can be forgiven. But you've got to face the truth. You've got to stop blaming the wrong people. You've got to focus on yourself. You need to come back home. That's what Genesis 38 is telling me. It's what it's telling you.